Welcome to the Future Financial Planners podcast, brought to you by the Financial Planning Association of Australia. Whether you're a student, a graduate, or an early career advisor, join us as we dive into the ins and outs of becoming a financial planner. I'm your host, Azaria Bell, bringing you tips from the experts on career strategy, sanity, and success. Today's episode is focused on how to get your first job in financial planning. I'll be joined by Alastair from Striver, a platform designed to connect financial planning students with employers. We discuss how to approach businesses to obtain work experience, how to properly market yourself, salary expectations, interview tips, and a ton more. So let's get right into it. Hi Alastair, thank you so much for joining us on the show this week. Hi Sazari, nice to be here. So on the podcast so far, we've been talking about everything that's required to get ready to start your career in financial planning. We'd be talking about the professional year, how to make the most of university and all of that kind of stuff. But I think the hardest part is actually landing that first job in financial planning. So that's what we wanted to talk to you about today. And I thought you'd be perfect because I know that you've helped so many students or career changers start their career in financial planning. So could you tell people who maybe aren't familiar with yourself and Striver, what do you do? Yeah, and, and in fact, just a bit back on that, the reason why we set this business up or why I was involved with setting this business up was I found it the hardest thing post-university for me was to get myself a job. So that was the problem I wanted to try and solve with Striver. And so Striver... We've been around as Striver for nearly two years, but before that, we were as a business called Grad Mentor. So for about the last nine years, um, I've been helping you know, new entrants and career changers find their first job in financial planning. And we don't do you know, experience movements around the profession. We're not a recruitment agency. We help you know, the new entrants. And our commitment to the profession is that we, we grow it um, and not move people around it. And, and before that, I had 10... 15 years maybe in financial services and financial planning and, and nearly 10 years in, in one large bank. And this is a profession that I grew up in and really, really passionate about. The, the difference that this um, profession makes to Australians every single day is profound. And, and most practitioners or every practitioner that you'll meet that works in the profession is connected to that and really resonates with that. And that's why they do what they do. And so what we do at Striver is we help, you know, um, new entrants or, or people present themselves in the best possible light to get themselves in front of the right person who's actually going to give them the job and get them to start on their first day and their first paid job in their career. That's something that we're really committed to, we're really passionate about, and we've had, you know, success for many, many years in doing that. And, um, you know, I think this year we're, we'll place over 120 new entrants into the profession. And that's got, you know, a lot of benefits to new entrants and supporting them and presenting them. But it's also got a lot of um, benefit to the profession and sustainability long term, and ultimately Australians who are the ultimate beneficiary of you know really great financial advice. Yeah, that's excellent. And you touched on there some of the reasons that people go into financial planning. So, in your experience working with so many people that are entering the financial planning industry, why is it that they're choosing financial planning, let's say over accounting or other careers in finance? What kind of sets financial planning apart? Look, the the good thing, the financial planning is about people, right? And and I quite often use this analogy of a coach, whether it be a singing coach, a sporting coach, a crochet coach, whatever coach it is, you know, somebody that helps somebody go from A to B along a journey, holding them accountable, using the tools that they have within the systems that they work in to help people achieve a goal. And fundamentally, fundamentally, you know, taking people to a place 
where they want to be and what's important to them. And so financial planning is that, right? Like what's important to you as a client? You know, is, do you want your kids fed? Do you want them to go to good schools? Do you want a roof over your head? Do you want to be able to go on holiday with your family and friends? It's not always about making more money. It's about doing what's, you know, achieving what's important to you in life. And the, fin- the role of a financial planner is to understand that and understand where people are now and then work within the systems and the um, law and the tools at their disposal to hold them accountable to them achieving what's important to them whilst they can focus the rest of their lives on the other things that are important to them, be family or career or so forth. And I just think that's a really rewarding um, profession to be a part of where, you know, you're actually helping people achieve that outcome and, you know, accountants and lawyers and all these other professions, they have all their all their purpose and place in, in all of that and, you know, everybody needs them in sort of elements of their lives. But the financial planning bit is, is taking people towards a goal which is articulated by the individual and I think that's a really rewarding part of it. It's got a social drive. It's got an individual purpose. You can, you can work in this profession and leave a real footprint when you leave it saying this is the difference I made in people's lives. So I think that's really profound. And I think it's something that young people really demand these days. That's the, you know, it's just where you're a social group, you belong to communities, you want to make a difference. There isn't a better place to do it than other than financial planning. Yeah, I agree. And I think for myself and a lot of my friends, we're all looking for meaning in our work and financial planning is just is the perfect opportunity for that. And there's so many, so many times on that journey too where there's going to be significant moments where you can really put your, your, your hand on it and say that's the difference I made that's, that's wonderful right yeah exactly right so in your experience helping lots of students and um, career changes get into financial planning where would you say the best time in your degree is to start getting work or work experience right should now. you be doing that from day one <laughs> no time like the present right now and and you know, that's like my back. My story was, you know, I finished my degree in marketing and tourism management and was washing cars at Volvo and South Perth with a chocolate milk and a meat pie going, this is not why I went to university. <laughs> and I couldn't get a job, yep. right? And mm-hmm. everything that I've learned since that day to today has been, it's been, you must have fun and enjoy yourself and, and, and be a good person. But you must also, you know, don't leave it to the last minute. Always you know, be upskilling and always be making yourself better and, and getting exposure to and so forth. Don't be that person with all the other people sitting there washing cars going, this is not what I got a tertiary education for. Take that mm-hmm. take that out of the mix. I would hate to be a university grad now going through the graduate application process. It would just be my worst nightmare and I know so many of your listeners will be doing that. Mm-hmm. So... Um, I know I couldn't get a job through that process. I wasn't one of the top that could get through any of those grad programs. So I had to think mm-hmm. outside the box about how I got myself started. And, and what I did was I went off and, you know, actually I don't condone this, but I, you know, I offered myself up for a week or two for, for no pay and, and did that. Ultimately, they gave me a job. I don't condone anybody doing that, but you need to think about how do you make yourself employable? How do you make yourself a yes? How do you link your... Mm-hmm all your experiences and all the value you can add to getting people to get you in their business so that you can prove to yourself. Because the hardest thing, I reckon, Zaria, is getting that first job. The easiest thing, and I'm happy to tell all your listeners here today, <laughs> managing your career is the easy part. Mm, That's mm-hmm. easy. Managing, having a successful career is easy. Getting your first job is a hard bit. 
Yeah. And I have a question on that, Alistair, because I know that I hear this frustration from so many people is that you look at these job ads and they look quite entry level, but they all require experience. And how can you get experience without experience? How do you find people navigate that? Yeah, that's a real conundrum, obviously. Um, and, you know, strivers, we, we focus on those without experience. Our clients don't want experience, right? And, and maybe this is a way to unpack that question, right? We work with clients who say, we don't want you to come in with bad habits or other ways. We want to, we want to train you up our way. But mm-hmm. this is probably one of those things that people kind of really battle with. Like we'll, have, we'll find a student that's in their you know, penultimate year at university and they've come to us with a CV and there's no implanted work experience on it or something. And I go, well, what have you been doing for money? And they go, oh, I work at McDonald's. And I'm like, why is it on your CV? Oh, the career advisor said that um, it wasn't relevant, so don't put it on. Okay, so you've just been telling me that you're being told that you need experience and then you're not putting the only paid job that you've had on your CV. Mm. So what's, what's a really important thing is, um, so you might not have experience in the marketplace and you need to make sure that's, is it okay? But then how do you take your time at McDonald's or your time working in a cafe or the time in the call center or your time stacking shelves at Woolworths at night time? How do you package that up and make it relevant work experience because it is because mm-hmm. in fact if i was hiring someone straight out of university you know i'm not hiring someone two years out with more experience and more expense and less likely and i've got to take them out of a job and they've got to give me four weeks and all that sort of jazz i'm not doing that yeah i'm hiring a new entrant what are the things i'm looking for and what i look for as an employer and every single one of our clients i've ever worked with which with 478 of them on the platform now is that they ask for attention to detail a good work ethic, working in a team, and treat it like a career, not a job. Mm-hmm. So you think about what you learn at Woolworths, stacking shelves at night. Attention to detail is probably pretty important. If you put that, yeah. I don't know the example that I'm going to use, but if it's the unsalted butter where the salted butter should be, whatever, it's probably not <laughs> catastrophic. But, you know, like the attention to detail and um, it's working under pressure, you're working in a team, you're, you know, you're responsible how your actions impact others. If you turn up in my business and you upset the 20 people working in my business because you're not working in the team or picking up after yourself or picking up the phone when it needs to ring, then you're the first person out. Like, I can't have that. So being able to take those skills that you've got in your relevant work and putting them into the things that the firm that you're working for is looking for, right, those are the things you need to be able to articulate. Now, if you're not getting into an interview because you don't have that work experience, you need to be bringing that to the table really quickly in your cover letter or whatever that's saying these are the attention to detail, this is the work ethic and so forth because that's what we're looking for. The, the, the reason why people like people with experience is hopefully they don't have to train them, but also there's a track record. So if I was going to employ you and you're the first person, I'm the first career job you've ever had, Zari, then I'm taking all the risk. Yeah. Um, because there's no proof in your ability to perform. So what you need to do for me is take the risk out of my head before – I tell you, oh, you're not experienced or it was a better candidate or any of those things that they'll tell you. What really it is, I'm sitting here going, risky. De-risk it for me. So prove to me that you're going to work hard. You're going to give me attention to detail. You're going to turn up. You're going to be good with the team. Those are the things you need to prove to me. And if you can prove them, you're a long way closer to getting the job. 
Yeah, that's those are great tips. And I also think you're not going to get to that stage of proving yourself if you just don't apply in the first place. I know when I was trying to get out of, um, I was working in the theme park, I'd worked at KFC, I'd worked at Kmart, I had all this experience, but nothing to do with my degree in commerce. So I was applying for so many jobs. I must have applied for 20 jobs before I got a job in a bank. I had no banking experience and they wanted banking experience, but you're never going to have that opportunity unless you just apply. Don't let that deter you from lodging that application. That's what I always say about lottery. You you can't win the lottery if you don't have a ticket. (laughs) That's exactly right. I still hope that one day I'll win the lottery without ever buying a ticket, but... (laughs) I can can give you a pretty pretty good promise there, Zara. But but that's... um, also the point right like if you're getting that this and you know doesn't happen so much now but give me a year ago i would see these um students that said i've applied for 40 roles and no answer i said what are you doing and they say oh you know i'm I'm sending all these ads on on seek right you must do seek everyone must do seek if you're hiring people or getting a job or whatever you must have a seek profile but if you're sending in 40 applications in seek and not one of them's responding to you then don't keep doing the same thing over and over again because it's broken right Either yeah. fix it or think about how are you going to get in front of the person that's actually going to give you the job, you know, and that's when your FPA um, student membership and things like that come in. Like that's that you've got to you've got to be putting yourself in the place where the people are who are going to be making the decisions. I mean, that's what we do at Stride. We we put you in front of people who have jobs today and don't need experience. So we do that. But if you're doing that on your own, if you're doing the same thing over and over again, that another. 20,000, I think there's like, you know, 60,000 commerce graduates per year in Australia. Like, So you're one of them. You're one of 60,000 people doing exactly the same application in OnSeek. It's noisy and your likelihood of success is low. So what are you doing that's going to be different to that? You need to get yourself in front of the person that's going to give you the job and then make them like you. Exactly. What's going to set you apart from everyone else? That's kind of always the approach I took at university. And that's a really good one, right? So... 60,000, okay, so say that number's not so high, but say say there's 60,000 and then the top, more than two standard deviations above the norm, the higher distinction. So if it's academics that are important, that's 2%, right? 2.5% of 60,000 is what? Is uh, 1,200? <laughs> so then there's 1,200 university students in the country with high distinctions, right? If that's what's the criteria. Now you're all in a room. So I walk into that room and I've got one job and I'm looking at 1,200 of you. Which one am I going to employ? Do you mm-hmm. think? Who do you think I'm going to employ? You're all, Academically, you're all the same. The one that's, I guess, put some effort in to show how passionate they are about the industry, maybe got some work experience. Or, or de-risks it for me, takes all my fears away. And what are my fears? You want to... You know, you want to have the corner office tomorrow. You want you want to be the CEO <laughs> next week. You want to, um, you know, walk before you can crawl. You you can't prove your work ethic. You can't prove your teamwork. You can't prove your attention to detail. So those are all things that you're probably getting when you're working at Woolies now, 30 hours a week, and still getting credits at university. Or, you know, like I don't put as much focus on academics as I do as on work ethic and um, likability and employability. Right, and so. And then how you position those things to the person, you know, who's going to employ you is the thing that's going to make the difference. Your ability to communicate, really. And that and that probably, if you've been working in a call centre or working in a bar or a restaurant, your ability to communicate, if you've done that for two or three years, is far higher than it would have been before you started that, for sure. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, probably a question that a lot of people would have at the moment is, 
What is the demand for graduates and new entrants in financial planning like at the moment? Are there enough jobs to go around? Um, yeah, look, this is probably earlier. Like if, if I was my 20-year-old self um, or my two or four-year-olds were 20 years old now, I'd be saying, okay, let's look at all the opportunities. Go to university, get yourself a degree, but get yourself a degree in, 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 a, in an industry, broader industry, not just the profession within that industry that has the most employability. I, there's more financial planning opportunities uh, or opportunities to get into this profession, the financial planning profession, than any other profession I know of. Um, you know, we look through what COVID did to accounting and it certainly drove up demand and need for local businesses and so forth. But technology's automating it. Um, it's, it's, there's the offshoring's automating it. Um, those, those sort of professions are really, you know, retracting financial planning is expanding there is a barrier let's come in perceived barrier probably to some parts of the, the profession but opportunity is what i see around the professional year and education i think that's a great thing for your listeners the mm-hmm. fact that there's a professional year no longer you're going to go into an organization that's going to throw you a phone book and give you a telephone and say get dialing that doesn't happen anymore Thank goodness for that. Yeah, it's great. Like, you know, in any any business that's reluctant to put you through a professional year, you should walk away, mm, you know. So um, it might, it definitely won't be that you walk out of high school, go to university, get your financial planning degree and walk straight into a professional year. That won't happen. I will mm-hmm. I will go down to that lottery ticket conversation and say there's a fair chance that won't, <laughs> won't happen. Um, it's more likely that you'll go and spend a year or, or year and a half or 18 months or whatever in a firm before they entertain a professional year. And so it's probably a three to five year journey from when you, you know, if you're a 21, 22 year old finishing a degree and before you, you'll be likely a fully fledged financial planner. But that's good because that means that people aren't throwing, you know, you're not getting your scalpel and being told you're a brain surgeon until you've done your time, right? There's not another profession in the world that gives you a scalpel straight out of university. So that's what this profession is built for you. This is good. This is good for you and firms firms that will want to invest in it. So we certainly see a really high demand uh, in the profession. And, and, and honestly, we this is our busiest quarter ever. We've placed more people into firms this quarter and the quarter being quarter two, Calendar year quarter two, 2021, just for in case this is being listened to in 50 years' time, Zara. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, we've never seen high demand and, and that's a fantastic opportunity for your listeners and, and you know, we we, uh, we can't keep up with the demand. So this is – if the reason you're going to university is for employability, then this is a profession you should be looking at. It should be in your top three for sure. Oh, that's great. That's exactly what we want to hear. Great news. So let's say now I'm, I'm looking to get my first work experience in financial planning and I'm, I'm opening up Seek and I'm searching junior advisor and there's nothing coming up. What are the roles that I should be searching for that are relevant to me as a someone who's new to the industry? Yeah, so, and this is probably just what we experience. Um, people going to customer um, Client admin, customer service, or power planning. And power planning is probably more technical, like it takes time before you can sort of get into that. But, but generally, it'll be client admin or customer service. So that's why if you've worked in call centers or customer service roles, bring that to the table. Client admin is attention to detail. And so if I was my 21-year-old self listening to this and I heard Alice say what you should be doing as a new entrant is going into a client admin role. And what that means is, you know, um, 
doing the detail that helps get the client's situations or the advice executed and, and you mm-hmm. know, that might be putting um, uh, loan applications through or insurance underwriting applications through or working with insurance underwriters to make sure that the client's medicals are all covered off and so forth, all that sort of jazz. That to me is like learning long division. This is stuff that if you learn that and you become the best at navigating your way through underwriting um, in you know the top five um, insurance companies in Australia, then you become more employable. Trust me, if you're really, really good at that, not only do you become more employable, four or five years down the track when you're sitting in front of your first client or even your hundredth client, you remember all the things that you needed to know around what is the right thing for that client based on your exposure or time really understanding the administration process or understanding how certain products fit certain clients' needs. Uh, and then a customer service, you know, like between the link between how that advice benefits the human being. That's a really, really key one, right? Because this, this profession is all about humans and how, you know, seeing how the advice delivered or benefits the individual is another key because you can actually maybe take a foot a step back and sort of see that link. So that's another role that you might be doing in this process. And again, such a good learning experience. All of that forming your foundation to becoming a great advisor into the future. So though customer service and client admin and paraplanning is a very specialty role these days, but you've got to start somewhere, right? And so, I mean, I didn't mean paraplanning was a start to something. To get into paraplanning, um, because some, a lot of people become career plan, paraplanners and, and in fact that's where I started in the profession and I loved it mm-hmm. so you know r- ways into that but a lot of people I work with and they've been paraplanning for 20-30 years too right so it's very much yeah. a specialist profession these days too yeah a very valid career in itself so we're talking here I guess a bit about delayed gratification so you're not going to be coming straight out of university and advising straight away you're going to kind of work your way up over time and I guess that probably applies in that case to salary as well. So what is your, maybe a bit of a cheeky question, but for people that are um, stepping into their first roles in financial planning, what kind of salary expectations can they? Not a, not a cheeky question. I think this is one of the most relevant questions. And it's a, you know what's the question you all want to ask, so let's talk about this. Yes. Let's talk about the taboo, right? So we let's generally see people starting in a full-time role with between about $50,000, $55,000 plus super. I would suspect that there might be a little bit of pressure on that going up at the moment, but that's generally the starting point. And since banks have come out of it as well, like that's probably, they might've given you a little bit more base salary as a starting point. Um, but like any organizational, any any role anywhere, the roles that generate the revenue generally make more money than those that, yeah. that don't. And so as your role becomes more client facing, your salary potential will go up. And it's been many years since I've looked at this as Aria, so I can't, don't, like, well, I'm probably going to get quoted. I should have the numbers. I used to look at the Beto's Institute. But, like, if, you know, an average um, uh, advisor, salaried advisor can earn upwards of $150,000. So your upside's big. And if you want to run your own business, then you can, you can write your own ticket there. So the ability to generate a good income in this profession is absolutely sound and, and absolutely mm-hmm. proven. And you can, you know, go and ask anyone around the profession that that's a doable starting point and probably be out there. But when we work with new entrants, we do this exercise on 
what you know what are the most important things when you're looking for a role and generally i say like salary shouldn't be higher than maybe fifth because you know a few thousand dollars here and there or five thousand dollars here and there in your first job is going to be a rounding error in two or three years time what you should yeah. what you should be doing is looking is like drawing yourself a matrix and i'll just throw out a couple of things you should be looking at about culture purpose alignment brand values flexibility education development access to leadership um, career development education these are the things in your first role that you should be prioritizing over the salary like you must be getting paid fair and reasonable um, but then putting those other things that are actually going to move your career along faster or with more consistency or quality are way more important yeah. Second, third role, three, four, five years down the track, sure, in, your income is going to jack up on that on that ranking and be more important. Um, but make sure it's fair and reasonable. But if you're coming in straight out of university and it's higher than number five on your priority order, you might just be being a bit short-sighted. Yeah. Yeah, I know for myself. So I've been in the industry for, I think, three years now. And uh, early on there, I was thinking, you know, I've got other friends in this industry and they're earning a lot more money than me. Um, But ultimately, I decided to choose experience and the diverse range of experience I was getting over the income. And three years later, I'm very, very glad that I did that. that. That kind of knowledge is invaluable and that will generate more income as you go through your career. Yeah, I used to hear things like, oh, my mate's working at Macquarie Bank and they're getting paid this much money. Well, this is not Macquarie Bank and that's not where you're working. And, and, you know, also, again, three years down the track, that person probably doesn't want to be at Macquarie Bank anymore. So, you know, steady as you go, make sure you're you're surrounding yourself with good people who are going to support your development and allow you to build yourself into a profession where you can really make a difference. Um, you don't want to cut corners on that, especially early. I know it's hard as a 22-year-old going, yeah, but I can do it tomorrow. Maybe you can do it tomorrow, but sometimes that'll buy you. Yeah, absolutely agree. So how are people these days approaching the professional year question when they're talking to potential employers? Well, I guess I just want to make sure that it's an option, right? Because mm. I don't know if anyone's really setting. I think there was this expectation when it first came out from the profession and for individuals that we'd be like, like, in accounting, we'd be springing out of university straight to professional year, billing hours and so forth. It's a very, very different mm-hmm. thing. You know, as an accountant, you can go in and you can be doing filing or, or you know, checking, writing and be charged out as a billable hour. Therefore, we can put you into professional year. It doesn't happen in financial planning, unfortunately. And, and so um, I think how you should question it is you, you should be having a frank conversation with the employer saying, my aspirations are to become a financial advisor. I understand that that might be a two or three year journey or whatever you really think it's going to be. Um, and I'm looking for an employee uh, that is going to be supportive of that, right? Because there'll be no promises. You might get in there and after 18 months go, you know what, this is not where I can't see myself being here long term. Therefore, I don't want to set my professional year up. And they might be thinking the same thing about you. But I think yeah. everybody should go into initial partnership with a long term horizon. Um, and that's probably a bit of a downfall of, of um, some of the new entrants coming in is that they, if it is good, has to be a three-year exercise legally now almost, then you have to go into your, your role uh, with the intention of being a relatively long relationship. Everything yeah. changes, Zari. Like it's not – you're not signing your life away in stone. But if 
you're expecting them to invest in you at some stage in the future and you're expecting to invest in them in some stage in the future, you need to go into it being clear on what you want to, what you're investing in, right? So um, yeah. I think you should look for firms who and be clear with them that that's your journey and that's what you're looking for and them saying, give it everything goes well from both sides and we're, we're, we're going to entertain that, then that's what, you, that's what you should be looking for. Yep, that's great advice. And in terms of the professional year and just generally as well in terms of your um, your experience in your career, what are the pros and cons of working for, say, a small business with just a few people versus working in some of the larger organisations? I love this question. It's my favourite one and I think um, – and, and I, I'm in a unique situation that um, – I can talk about both because I've been in both. And I started my career in small business. I loved it. I guess, I don't know, it was from, you know, growing up, my father running his own business and so forth. And I love the idea of working in a small business because you can see all the moving parts really quickly. And my, I yeah. moved to Sydney from Perth and was working in a, in a small firm in O'Connell Street. And I loved it. And um, I, I felt that I was having more impact than I'd ever have in an organisation with 40,000 people. And then funnily enough, I ended up at ComBank. So after 18 months of that and saying no a few times, I ended up at ComBank and I didn't want to go to ComBank. I was going there for six months. I just, you know, wasn't working in the organisation I was working at. So I went to ComBank and I was going there for six months. I ended up spending nine and a half years there before I resigned and and I loved every single moment of that. Now, and they, you know, they paid for my education they developed me. I did a whole bunch of different roles across the retail bank and, and Colonial First State, and I loved every minute of it. Um, and then I left there to go and change the world and set up a not-for-profit and then, you know, set up Striver. And, and now I love Striver. I mean, Striver, small business is, is my passion. All our, most of our clients are small businesses, and, and I love that. So I think um, I'm not anti either and a lot of people think they need to go to a big organization before they can go to small and I kind of did it the other way around and I think the beauty of small business is you know 56% of gross domestic product in Australia is delivered by small to medium businesses and that will directly reflect on the amount of people they employ it's the biggest employer small to medium businesses the biggest employer in Australia mm-hmm. so bigger than the ASX top 200 all together combined so yeah, and and it's something that you don't see at university, so you don't get the pretty bank logos and the pretty um, consulting firm logos in those in in the lecture halls at university. Uh, you do get those. You don't get all these, you know, the fifty six percent of where all the jobs are. So it's a it's a really big pool of opportunity that young people haven't seen. Generally, the the locally owned, the family owned, the director owned, the family businesses, um, the community focused businesses. Um, the client sees the owner, the owner sees the client, the, the receptionist um, or the person that picks up the phone sees the client, you know, the person at the front desk sees the client walk in the office and then walk out with the service and the outcome that's needed and when everything goes wrong, everyone's there together and, and that's a really nice thing about small business. I used to also say I worked in the uh, Combank for 10 years and I shook the CEO's hand once. Um, yet in a small business, you can have a coffee with a CEO every week. And so there's a lot more to be said about all that sort of stuff. The, the, the actions that you do in a small business, you can directly see in the, in the eyes of the client. Harder, mm. harder to do in a big business. So it's probably less about the size of the business that you're going for, but more the business individually, if it matches your values and matches where you want to go in your career. Is that probably more that what you want to be looking at? Yeah, well, and see, that's interesting because I didn't want to go into a bank because of that, but, like, I aligned with a lot of 
uh, well, everything in the bank. I wouldn't have stayed there if I didn't. Um, but yeah, I just, I feel like in small business, the ability to kind of go, we made impact there and be able to put, mm-hmm. your, put your point to the impact that you made and the footprint that you leave. I think that's something that resonates with me. That's one of my drivers, right? And I know that sort of, you know, you're closer to the client. The closer you get to the client, the more authentic you can be in the business. And that's yeah. why large organisations sometimes trip up over things because they get, you know, the decisions are made so far away from the end client that there's a disconnect and that's where you see, you know, things happen. Um, and so, you know, not that things, bad things don't happen in small business, but that's a bit of the issue with big business. The further, the, the more and more, the bigger your job gets or the higher up the food chain, the further away from the customer you get and the more disjointed you are with the community. And I think that's a really interesting thing. Yeah, that's it. And I think it's personal. Ultimately, I've always worked in small businesses and I have friends in this industry who've always worked in big organizations and we both love our jobs for different reasons. So different strokes for different folks. And if it's money, you know, um, you can make, you can make as much money as you want in either of those. Well, you're probably limited in the amount of money you can make in a large organization, but you can make as much money as you like in the small business. So don't let, again, don't let that be the driver for it. Um, mm-hmm. I think young people think that the training and ex- education and stuff that they get in the large organisations um, good, and that that is good, you know. Mm-hmm. But then you're further away from the customer as well, which is where the real learning is. Yeah, agreed. Now I'm interested to hear your opinions on this one, Alistair. When people are looking for that first job, they could either do it themselves by applying directly to roles or they can go through a recruiter. And obviously, Striver is another option there as well. But if we're talking specifically about doing it yourself or going through a recruiter, what are some of the things that you'd recommend they consider? You should probably you should probably explore all of them, to be honest. I think, um, you know, we, we, we're not a traditional recruitment agency. We work directly with young people getting their first job and we work with a lot of firms. A lot of firms look for experienced people and they come to us and we don't we don't help them out. Um, mm-hmm. So, but working with a recruiter, you want someone that's going to, especially at your stage, you need some direction, right? You need people that are going to sort of support you in um, presenting yourself and articulating yourself and, and not giving you the runaround. You need, you, need a, you need to probably find someone that's going to really look after you and that's why... A niche business that specifically looks after students is probably good for you um, because, you know, most recruiters will aim to get, a, get you in front of you and a bunch of other people in front of one job and our aim is to sort of get you in front of many different options and focus on what's the best thing for you. But then approaching yourself again, probably the one thing that you need to think about and that's where we, how you approach it is just think about your audience, think about where you're going and think about what's in it for them. The number one thing is, you know, people want you to think about their problems and not solve yours. And so, you know, if you're talking to a firm or you, you've got this customer service experience with a strong work ethic or drive or whatever, you need to be, when you're talking to a firm, you can't just think that they like you, therefore they're going to hire you. They've got a return on investment they've got to make from you. So how do you position yourself to actually add value to that firm? So, you know, polish your CV up well best suit and tie, that's always a thing. Go to where your audience is, work with the FPA Students um, Society and, w- and what are the opportunities and places that you can be showcased there. COVID makes that a little bit tougher, but, you know, organisations like the FPA really give you chances. Um, come onto the Striver platform, set up a profile on striver.careers um, and, you know, make sure that you're you're getting something out of it, but you're also positioning yourself 
um, to deliver what your audience wants. Yeah, for sure. And with the COVID, obviously that's um, kind of changed the financial planning industry a lot in the sense that we're a lot more uh technologically connected, um, if that's the right way to say that. So my question is, have you seen a change in how many people you're placing in roles that are virtual roles? Have you seen anyone being put into roles that are completely online? Oh, look, and I think you're, um, I I think people kind of thought that might be a thing um, and I'm sure it happens, but it's pretty hard. Like, you know, you've had a few years experience. I know you're working virtually now, but um, you know, there is not, there's a lot to be said for the ability to shadow with somebody or to, um, you know, that being said, like we've grown our business to seven staff since March last year and most of them, well, a couple of them only just met once in the last couple of months. Mm-hmm. So there's a difference. Um, but from your perspective too, and I worry that, that um, young people need to be, we need to get you in social situations or, or situations that are... Um, sort of co-working, it's not to say that mm-hmm. it can't happen. Um, there's a hybrid of both. Uh, but what, I, what we have seen a lot of, um, Zara, is, is businesses thinking more flexibly. We would, I was talking 18 months ago at every conference I spoke at about flexibility and I remember, you know, <laughs> the financial planning profession said, yes, but that means that they want to work from the beach and then now we're all working flexibly. Like today, Sydney's back in lockdown for the first business day since I don't know when, uh, since before Christmas and... You know, and we've all gone back to, well, we've got this, we know how this works and everyone's tech-enabled and flexible-enabled. Um, that's not mm-hmm. demeaning that we're not going to be champing at the bit to get back in the office at least one day a week. We work one day a week together in the team and that's I think that's really important. So not a lot of really, really remote stuff. I know there's lots of businesses that are doing that. Um, they're generally having experienced people, but we might see more of it. But I think there's still real value in getting human mentoring and exposure to real case studies. How are you enjoying working flexibly? I love it, but I couldn't have done it had I not had those um, years working with someone face-to-face. Yeah, (laughs) that's been my experience for sure. Um, But another thing that a lot of students get encouraged to do is to network. And that sounds good in theory, um, but it's a whole world. I know that when I was at uni, that was something that I I was really, really nervous about. So could you talk to us a little bit about some of the places that you can network and maybe some tips for actually building confidence to have those conversations? Yeah, I think it's like spiders, public speaking and clowns. It's like the number one people's (laughs) fear. And I think, I don't know what that is. I mean, I certainly had it too, right? And most people would think I'm pretty extroverted, but, you know, networking events really harrowing and, you know, um, things like LinkedIn and so forth, it's easy to say, I'll get your LinkedIn profile up and be an influencer. I've heard people tell young people, you know, post stuff on LinkedIn. I reckon that's that's rubbish because it really won't, unless you've got something to say, like that's not not the best way to network. I think your LinkedIn profile is really important. It should look clean and you should invite people to it and you should, you know, everybody you know, you should invite as your friends and, and, and build that out, but but being an influencer, if it was that easy to be an influencer on LinkedIn or, or Facebook, or we'd all be doing it. So don't just <laughs> think it's like that. You can click it on. I think it's important to just invite everybody you know. And I always had the rule of thumb on LinkedIn that anyone that I had that would have a coffee with me, I would make a friend. Mm-hmm. Generally, I'll um, you know I'll connect with a broader group now because of the business that we run. But um, so that's one one thing that's really cool, um, key. And like if I would met you, Zaria, in a digital environment like this for whatever reason, I would be I would happily write to you the next day and say, Hi Zaria, we met you at 
the podcast briefing yesterday and um, mm -hmm. it'd be great to connect as friends or whatever. And then in three years' time, and you'll all say so yes, no one's going to say no to that, right? And it'd be pretty harsh if we met each other and you said no to being my friend on <laughs> LinkedIn. Um, and you must then, have done something wrong. <laughs> yeah, and then in three years' time, though, I met you at somewhere down the down at some function. I go, oh, where did I meet Azaria again? I go back, I look you up, and it says there, on this date, I said this. Mm. So, therefore, I can track our interaction. I come up to you and say, hey, three years ago we did a podcast together. I bet you can't remember. And you go, oh, actually, I do, and you think it's amazing. Right? Yeah. So, that's a really effective way to use LinkedIn. I would use it like that. I would not try and be an influencer unless you've got something to say, unless you've got great content like you do and you really want to do that, that's fine. But if you just want to build a network, don't try and be an influencer in LinkedIn. Um, but you like leverage the opportunities you've got in your student societies. Um, again, I'm just you know your there's FPA um, student societies like you know just take every opportunity you can to be in a room or involve like we did one of those where we had breakout rooms before and you get to meet people. Just go to them, right? Prove mm -hmm. to me as an employer that you have a genuine passion in this in this profession. Yeah, just take any opportunity to be able to demonstrate that and. And have a chat and, and also like so approaching someone right this is probably the, the, the next part of the question is like generally people want to have a chat generally people pretty nice I don't like any I don't like being asked a hundred times at a networking event why how I got into the profession or why I'm passionate about this or anything like that that really drives me batty um, okay. But my favourite question to ask anybody when I first meet them on a Zoom call, especially in interviewing them, is what do you do for fun? Mm, mm -hmm. What do you do for fun, Azaria? Um, a lot of podcasting. <laughs> okay, and, 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 what, and so, oh, that's cool. What's your favourite podcast? What do you listen to? Da, 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 where do you get inspiration? I like cooking. What do you do? Da, 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 da. I like exercising. I like travelling. I like, And it just gives you that icebreaker and it's not... It's not offensive. I get to talk about myself. I get to, ah, oh, look, I like hanging out with my kids to be honest. So how old are your kids? Two and four. Oh, okay, cool. What are their names? The chat's gone away all of a sudden and it's about something I'm passionate about. That's the yeah. best networking I can tell you. Treat mm. people like people and talk about them and you're laughing. So building that rapport and not going straight into, hey, can I get career advice off you? Do you have a job for me? <laughs> oh, I'll get so tired so quickly on that. Like I'll do that for you, um, but just... Connect with me first, and people connect on people things. So don't, don't, don't. Doesn't everybody who goes in this here listens to this podcast every time they're in the next room? They'll say, "What do you do for fun?" And everyone gets sick of that question. But something <laughs> along those lines, right? Break the ice and shoot. And you know what? You might talk to them for twenty minutes about their children or their dog or their last cooking adventure or whatever, and that's fine. And then you say, "Hey, is, you know, next time in the city, can we have a coffee and talk about what I'm doing with my career?" Yeah, sure, no drums. That's cool. Yeah, that's a great tip. That's awesome. Now I'm going to ask you um, your tips for two topics and we'll make them fast track tips. So top three tips for building your resume. Make it easy to read. Uh, no pictures, banners, borders or perfume. And uh, give me a timeline of your paid work experience. And with, with the dates to the right-hand side so I can read it chronologically, cascading chronological, the most recent to the oldest. Perfect. Those are some great tips. Is that tips. three? That's three. That's, that's great. And now I want to hear your three tips on going into a job interview. Be early. Comb your hair, best suit and tie, polish your shoes, and depending on whether you're male or female, I just that, that's the general um, yep. aim. 
and research the people you're going to meet. They'll, they'll, they will be chuffed that you've done so. Definitely. Yep. I've used all of those in the past and they've helped Look me. Look at you. So. <laughs> they've been great. Awesome. So just personally as well, Alistair, in your experience, in your life experience, have there been any resources like books, maybe podcasts or anything that have really helped you um, developing those skills to find that first job? Oh, I know. Uh, I was I was thinking, what's what you going to ask? None of these questions are planned to people. Um, so, uh, look, I I like I use um, quote this book. You ask the people in the team. I always use this book, The Art of Start. Mm-hmm. And it's a book. I can't, I'm not going to be able to even quote the name of the person. Well, I, well, I to, I'll send it to you so you can put it in the blurb. The Art of Start, and it's a business book around. Um, you know, not spending three years putting a perfect business plan together and launching it. No one likes it. Um, mm-hmm. And so just like get it started, the minimum viable product, the agile way of thinking and so forth. So the art of start, get it started. And I think the same thing about career, right? Um, don't keep thinking you're going to find the perfect thing that you've been dreaming about since you were dreaming about being Cinderella. Like don't, it's not going to happen that way. What you need to do is you need to find a job that you connect with that you think you can make a difference in and you're resonating with. Get your feet under the desk and let it begin. Yeah, 100%. So we've covered so much ground in this episode, Alistair. So thank you so much. If anyone is interested in finding out a bit more about Striver, where can they go? You can go to striver.careers. That's the website. Join the tribe, sign up. Um, we're on Facebook. We're on um, Instagram. We're on LinkedIn. If you want to send me a connection on LinkedIn, that's fine, Alistair Barr. I'm sure my name will be written somewhere. Um, spell it right and then just say you heard me on the podcast and I'll connect with you. Perfect. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Alistair. Hopefully people out there can reach out to you if they have any further questions and we'll see you another time. My pleasure. Thank you so much. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Future Financial Planners podcast, brought to you by the Financial Planning Association of Australia. For great resources and a free student membership, find us at fba.com.au. Good advice makes for great futures.